Hey, podcast listeners, Mackenzie here. I wanted to personally thank you for listening and being a part of our community. We couldn't do this show without you. As we shape the next series of the Living Centered Podcast, I wanted to invite you specifically to help us out. We want to hear from you. We're currently in the process of curating a series all around exploring the relationships that make up our lives. Together with various experts, clinicians, and on-site alum, we'll explore the nuances, intricacies, and impact of the relationships within which we all exist. From families of origin to friendships, dating, working relationships, and beyond. We hope to host conversations with guests who bring a definitive and unique perspective. This is where you come in. We want to know your pressing relationship questions. You can submit your questions to podcast at experienceonsite.com and you might just hear an answer on our next series. I haven't had a successful experience that I have personally had or heard of where repressing and suppressing fear ended well. It just doesn't respond to being ignored. I look at it as providing information. Now, is it yelling in a megaphone? Absolutely. Is the volume turned up way too high and tapping into our inner critics? Yes. But does that mean that what it's saying is completely invalid? No. Mm. So that's the first thing, Lindsay, that I do is I normalize that fear is just another one of those emotions. Nothing more, nothing less. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. Hey friends, today I'm so excited because I get to introduce you to another incredible clinician who also happens to be an on-site guide. What I love about these conversations when we get to sit down with an on-site guide, the therapists who lead our group and intensive programs week in and week out, is that I get to show you a little bit behind the scenes of the magic of what happens at on-site. So sit down and buckle up. This is going to be an awesome episode. For over 20 years, Dondra Goldsby has worked as a licensed marriage and family therapist, and her years of training and experience include using an individualized approach to help people who often overfunction in their roles and those who deal with unresolved trauma and grief. In today's conversation, Dondra, Lindsay, and I took some time to reflect on the last couple of years, and we really dove deep into an overwhelming and prevailing emotion that I think was felt by most of us at one time or another fear. That's right, we are talking about fear today. Dondra shares both a professional and personal encouragement of how we can acknowledge our fear without allowing it to take over. She also shares how the tools that she has been teaching clients for over 20 years helped her as she walked through a really fearful medical diagnosis and recovery at the height of COVID. As someone who is very familiar with anxiety and fear, this episode was an absolute gift to me. And I can't wait for you to get to know Dondra. So without further ado, meet our friend, Dondra. Well, Dondra, thank you so much for joining us today. Lindsay and I have both been really excited to have this conversation. I think we particularly love when we get to have one of our on-site guides on. So thanks for joining us. Um, how long have you been an on-site guide and what did that journey look like coming to be a part of our workshops and our intensives. 
Sure. What that opportunity looked like for me was me not seeing the full vision initially. So I was employed at a place where an on-site God worked and she kept telling me for probably a couple of years, like, you should really come and, you know, be an on-site. And I had the opportunity to come and be a part of the Experiential Training Institute back in 2017. And both Bill, Loki, and Miles Atcox were running it. And I was informed that that is not typical for on-site. And so that was a real treat. And that was the beginning of my adventure with on-site. So I immediately then came in and did my own LCP and then interned LCP, interned LCP coupleship, did the Psychodrama Institute with Mary Belafonto. I hope I'm saying Mary's name correct. Forgive me, Mary. That was the beginning of my journey. And after that, it was just coming as often as I could. I love that. And how did you, I'd love to hear a little bit about your personal story and how you got into therapy as a profession. So, gosh, that's a good question. I'm trying to think of which (laughs) angle I want to take with it. How did I get into therapy? Well, I always knew I wanted to do something to help other people. I just wasn't sure, like, is it nurse, teacher, lawyer? What felt best for me was I was interested in the stories. You know, there's some limits to most of the other helping professions. And I I knew I would be that one that like wanted to hang back and ask more questions and, you know, offer some interventions and follow up and like see what was going on. And so that's how I got into it. And once I made the decision, you know, I just went in full steam ahead. It was it was the right fit for me. Yeah. What has been kind of the most rewarding part about helping, but helping to the level where you can really get in the nitty gritty of people's stories um, and see that life change? So there were phases for me as I went through the process. I mean, I've been a counselor since 2001. So lots of things have changed in our profession in a good way. And so, you know, wherever I worked, I kind of maximized what we were doing at that time based on the skill sets that we had. But I, again, just really impacted by the story. You know, as a marriage and family therapist, narrative therapy was one of the ones that we studied. And I've really been interested in the person's story because I think that what you tell yourself about what's going on with you is incredibly impactful. And if you really, truly believe it, then that's where your work is. And so in working with people, it's been finding out what's the story, what solutions have you tried before, and being incredibly culturally sensitive and competent. And after leaving on-site and learning that experiential is a whole vibe, then embracing that and not imagining how I did therapy before that. I, I love how you talk about narrative therapy and story and Mackenzie and I and our the whole marketing team at on-site that we're so passionate about storytelling and how telling our own stories can be be so healing and learning to reframe them. What like misconceptions do you feel like exist around sort of people as they try to understand their story and embrace it and tell it? First of all, I think is the fact that our story isn't didn't originate with us. We inherited a story. And so the story that we've been told and the story that the people who are telling us the story have been told is what gets, you know, that's what gets passed down to us. And that's where part of the problem is. And so I think that's the beginning of it. 
And I think sometimes people don't understand their story. And so the story doesn't sound right. And so then you tell yourself that maybe you're the problem or someone else is the problem. We forget there are some things that are just part of the universal process. It's just these things happen because we're just all doing life together. But we internalize some stories and we're picking up on stories that aren't accurate. And that just creates our path to doing therapy with someone. <laughs> I love, One of the things that was often told in my family story was that I am five years and six grades younger than my sibling. Uh, I have a sister. And one of the things that people still say all the time is that, that I really wanted to be the big sister. And it's so interesting that that is like so a part of my family's language and narrative. And I just kind of always accepted that. And then I also had all these assumptions about what they were saying when they said that. That I was bossy, that I was too big for my britches, that I was sort of like combative, you know, and aggressive and all these things. And that then I just kind of lived with that and felt frustrated and dissonance from that, how they would describe me. And so it's been cool as I've like even picked up on that fact that that's something that said that to be able to like start to refute it or to get more clarity on like, when you say that, what do you mean? Like, what am I, how am I supposed to interpret that? Right. And that's really important to me, Lindsay, when I'm talking to my clients, they can use a basic phrase and I'm still going to ask. So tell me what that means to you, because what I'm thinking it means, and I can feel 99% sure that I know what it means, but I really don't until I check that out with them. I do a lot of couples work and I love having those dialogues with couples. It's an interesting phenomenon to watch where they're telling me the story is so different between the two of them and what they're hearing and telling themselves about the situation is really different. You know, they say they share a story and I'm thinking, yeah, I didn't get that at all. Um, you know, <laughs> so I'm pressing in to what are you hearing? Like, because the story in your head impacts the story that you're hearing from someone else. Mm, that's so good. You talked a lot about in our pre-interview about fear and how fear really impacts the way that we see the world. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, what are some of the stories around fear that we may be experiencing? That's a really good question. So we are currently under and we've been under a tremendous amount of pressure for a really long time. And some of that is externalized, but most of us have gotten really adept at internalizing the things that create stress and pressure for us. And so there's a quote by Sarah Jakes Roberts that says, internalized pressure turns into fear. And so let's go back to the first quarter around March of 2020, when we found out about the pandemic. What did we do? We went a little crazy. We brought all the toilet paper. Like we just, I can remember <laughs> We sanitized our groceries. <laughs> We sanitized our groceries. We, I mean, we were of the impression that our breath has now been weaponized and we had never had that experience before. And people who couldn't have access to masks because somebody brought them all, they were making masks and people were getting kind of creative with how they were handling that. And it's just the more recent example 
at that time frame of what happens when we panic. So we don't understand. We're without information. We're without knowledge. We don't want to know knowledge. We don't want to seek knowledge. So you had the group that was either really tracking what was happening and really incredibly concerning. Then you had the group that was totally in denial, like this is not happening. And I think those are just examples of what happened when we get into fear. And so that then funnels into the stories that we tell ourselves. Some of the things that I've been processing with clients is around, it's my right not to be vaccinated and I'm not wearing a mask, but I'm getting flagged. Or I'm wearing a mask in the grocery store and I'm getting hate speech because I'm wearing this. Yeah, those are just some examples of what's happened. And I don't have the emotional bandwidth to even get into some of the things that's happened with race in terms of my culture. But what has happened with Asian Americans, what's currently happening with other people, humans, I think sometimes we forget we're dealing with humans, but our fears make us biased and they make us judgmental. And if we don't regulate that, then we become potentially dangerous to one another. How do you start to combat it? And so if unaddressed pressure leads is actually turns into fear and we know that we're all living with it, we feel it. I went through a process with my therapist where she actually made me at one point recently talk about all the things I was afraid of. And she was like, let's just put them all out there. And I was like, this, it was the most overwhelming activity because there's just so many like, abstract things that were I was afraid of at the time but how, how do we start to like get a handle on our fear I think a lot of us are living with it and don't even acknowledge it I believe in the idea of parts I was looking at something recently and it said that parts that become extreme are carrying burdens and I've seen that happen in my life and my clients and just in people around me. And yeah, we've been carrying a lot of burdens around because things have been really extreme. Things have been extreme on people, no matter what your socioeconomic status is or where you live in this world, we're all going through a universal experience on top of what we were already doing. And so for me, I am a self-identified recovering over-functioner. And for me, whenever the pressure is on, I'm going to just do what I need to do. It's like make it happen and just get it done. And that does create pressure. And then what fears go with that? What if I don't get it done? Who's going to be impacted? You know, you kind of start going down that rabbit hole. And so what's been helpful for me personally is to not demonize fear. It's an emotion. You know, if you go to feelingswheel.com, which I highly suggest, is something I recommend to my clients all the time in session. I'm like, let's pull it up. I'll wait. And we go through it. Let's screen share. Or if we're in person, some people have laminated theirs. They're, they've gotten really creative with, creative with it. But I'm like, let's go through it. Let's talk about feelings. And let's normalize them. And so you feel joy. You feel shame. You feel jealousy. You feel fear. Let's talk about it. I haven't had a successful experience that I have personally had or heard of where repressing and suppressing fear ended well. It just doesn't respond to being ignored. I look at it as providing information. Now, is it yelling in a megaphone? Absolutely. Is the volume turned up way too high and tapping into our inner critics? Yes. But does that mean that what it's saying is completely invalid? No. 
So that's the first thing, Lindsay, that I do is I normalize that fear is just another one of those emotions. Nothing more, nothing less. Hmm. And on the other spectrum of that, I think in my own life, I have a tendency to kind of sit on two sides of that spectrum. There's the denial, the doubt of like, okay, this isn't existing. If I can just keep putting one foot in front of the other, then the fear won't catch me. Or I operate in hypervigilance. And I start to, like you were saying, overfunction and overplan, and the fear becomes really big. And so, in both situations, I'm not really acknowledging and listening to what the fear is telling me. I'm just letting it affect me. So, what do we do? And we kind of sway into hypervigilance, and I'm overfunctioning. When you said that, Mackenzie, you just took me back to onsite. The room where the lectures are done, where we learn about the brain and the impact of trauma on the brain. And fear does that. It takes us right to that reptilian brain. It takes us right into this, oh my gosh, the bear's going to get me. The bear's going to get me. Where's the bear? I don't know, but he's coming for me. You know, we're so dysregulated in that moment. The quickest thing is breathing. It's the most orienting, regulating thing that I know in that in that moment. And for me, I don't always... Lindsay and I both took breaths right now. (laughs) I know, right? I noticed you doing it. And that's what I was going to say when I'm working with my... I don't always say, hey, let's take a breath. They'll tell me something. And I'm telling you the stories that people are carrying, even before the pandemic, but definitely in addition to the pandemic, they're so hard. And sometimes I'll say, well, let's take a breath. I'll breathe with you. And sometimes I'll just do exactly what you just did, Mackenzie, and take a deep breath. Let's breathe. Let's do some progressive muscle relaxation. And I'm telling you, I'll do it with them. Let's, okay, let's roll our necks. And, you know, we walk through that. Then I start asking questions. Hey, are you visual or do you like audio? Because whatever they say, trying to give a very experiential, neurodiverse response, whatever is your thing, we're going to find a way that you can use that to relax. And we do it in real time. You know, here's an app. Let's pull it up on your phone. I'm holding it and this is what it looks like. Is that, do you have that? Music. Okay, music is your thing. I wonder if a couple of playlists may be helpful, but we do all the grounding and all the anchoring because trying to tell them that the fear isn't real in that moment, it's not helpful. We just need to get regulated because I full, I'm a firm believer that once you get regulated, You go into your prefrontal cortex and then that's a game changer. Now we can problem solve and decision make. What what do you think? I mean, it's funny that we've been so programmed that we feel so many feelings about being afraid, (laughs) you know, that we're ashamed of it or that like, I feel like so often our because we don't acknowledge it that it comes out sideways so often and it comes out like anger. It comes out like shame. It comes out like overwhelm. I just am wondering why do we culturally have such a hard time with fear and acknowledging it? Cause it, it shouldn't just be normal. Like I, I just wonder where that comes from. It should just be normal. right? Yeah. It should just be normal. And it just, it just seems like it would save us so much time and energy if we could just like accept it, own it, address it, normalize it, talk about it versus letting it fester and become something bigger. And it just, I wonder, I, 
for the first time, I'm like, what's, why don't I do that better? <laughs> I just am wondering culturally what keeps us from acknowledging it. Well, you know, Lindsay, we started out talking about stories and the impact of stories. And I think what we've told ourselves is that is weak. If you're walking around in fear, then apparently, oh, let's put our, you know, shame hats on. Well, you shouldn't be feeling this way and you should have better coping skills or better faith or better belief in humanity or whatever. And so because we think it's something that's weak, we either suppress it or it just gets in our blind spot. And when things get in our blind spot, I mean, we obviously don't see it. And what gets things out of our blind spot is feedback. But. Again, going to the stories, if you don't know how to call someone in and the story that you abide by is one where you call people out, then that just makes them double down on why they weren't being vulnerable or sharing fear in the first place. Will you speak more to the calling in versus calling out? I like that idea. What does that look like or how do we do that well? It looks like treating people like they're human. It looks like treating people like they're sacred souls. It looks like not shaming people for being like you said, Mackenzie. Okay, so Mackenzie's having a hypervigilant response over there. So maybe something's really going on. Maybe we can attune to her and see what she needs versus making up a story about what she's lacking that caused her to be hypervigilant in the first place. And so calling in would look like, you know what? I can relate to that so, Mackenzie, because it's happened to me. I've done that before or I care about so I can I can relate either because it's happened to me or because it's happened to someone that I know and care about. And so I can be empathetic in that moment and I can share with you and I'm creating an opportunity for connection and for engagement because you don't feel judged. You don't feel like the spotlight's been put on you. Hopefully you feel like warmth, love, like, hey, this is kind of nice. This is really, yeah, this is helping me, not harming me. Calling out is an expose of what we didn't really ever want to acknowledge was going on in the first place. Hey y'all, Hannah and Mackenzie here. And we are interrupting this conversation because by now you've heard us go on and on and on and on and on and on about our on-site mercantile. We, we love, it. love it. Yeah, it's filled with so many amazing things. Every time I need a gift or a birthday or someone's moving, I instantly head to our mercantile because it's not only just filled with gifts, but gifts that actually make an impact. So mm-hmm. um, resources for your mental health. We have really special products that we've made internally, like tools for conversation, etc., And just lots of fun things like apparel, and gifts for kids, everything you could want. And we rarely do fun extra sales in the mercantile. Um, but this week, we are so excited that all week long, we are giving you free shipping with the code hooray. And so free shipping on anything you want, um, as much as you want, just for giving free shipping to celebrate this summer. We are so excited to give you this opportunity. And I made sure that Hannah got you a good code for just my podcast listeners. So get shopping, friends. I can't wait for you to discover all the incredible resources books, and apparel that we have in the on-site mercantile. Let's say we've got someone in our life that we see kind of spiraling. I think of my own life and we don't always know what we don't know. Like I, I've always operated with a lot of anxiety and I've, what I recognized as a child was a lot of worry. Um, and then later was diagnosed as an anxiety disorder. And I think it's just my normal. And we talk a lot at on-site about the water that you that you exist in, right? Like the fish doesn't know the water that it's in. So how do we kindly come alongside people or partner with them 
in anxiety to say, hey, I think this is a little bigger or this is out of, quote unquote, like a, a normal range of fear and anxiety? I think that, again, if we're, if we're treating people not only as humans and we're treating people as sacred, then we walk gently into the entire dialogue. We lead with sensitivity and that kind of becomes the filter. You know, love, compassion, kindness. This is how I'm going to begin. This is what's going to happen in the middle. This is what's going to happen in the end. And like, that's the tone and temperament that we take into those interactions. One of the things that I definitely don't mind sharing early in recovery, breast cancer survivor. And that was a process during a whole pandemic, which made that look a lot different of how to figure out how, like I had to figure that out. How am I going to deal with fear? Because I've got two choices. Hypervigilant has been something that I've been in the past, but I don't want to do that right now. Like there's limited bandwidth and capacity for what I'm able to do. And I was able to practice a lot of self-love. I really think that's a big antidote to fear when we can show love. And I'm like, I'm going to love on myself and give myself permission to feel exactly how I feel, however long I need to feel it, and to ask for what I need and to let other people love on me. And the fear did not become unmanageable. Hmm. Just acknowledging that is a lot and that's scary, especially I think during the pandemic, there was just so much uncertainty around going any sort of medical care and getting out of your house. So acknowledging that that's a huge thing that you have walked through and thank you for sharing that with us. What encouragement for other people that have just potentially gotten a diagnosis or are walking through scary health issues when life already feels uncertain outside of that like what encouragement could you give them being a little further along in your process something that I like to tell my clients when I'm doing um, EMDR if you want to just tell us briefly what EMDR is and kind of what it stands for it's is that I've done EMDR and I never remember what it stands for. So tell me what it stands for. That is okay. In the time it took you to say that, I remembered all of the acronyms. So (laughs) eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And we use it for people with anxiety and with trauma. Uh, One thing that I frequently tell my clients that I'm doing EMDR with is you can't do this wrong. And that's what I would lead with, Lindsay. You can't do this wrong. You can't do it wrong. And so have a lot of compassion for yourself. Also, the people who are here trying to support you and walk alongside you, they can do some things that maybe don't land well. But I truly believe that most of the time people's intention is to be helpful. So maybe they can introduce topics a little bit differently, may have to set a few boundaries with them, but always in love with the intention being that I do think you mean well, but let me show you how you can be a little more helpful for me at this moment. Trying to deal with major issues, whether it's a serious medical issue, a serious financial issue, a serious mental health issue, substance abuse, you're going to have a hard time if you're trying to do that in isolation without support. And at some point without community. And so that is something that will not only cause fear to fester, it can really take you to a dark place. You know, we're seeing a lot in the media about people and, you know, some of the the unfortunate things that have happened to them. And people say, oh, I had no idea. Checking on your friends 
is important. You never really know what people are going through. Right. Thanks. Social media and sort of living where we are posting pictures of ourselves and giving people just one vantage point into our life has led us all to sort of believe that that that's all there is, you know, is like the the well-edited picture or well-edited version of my life. And it is important to remember that people are going through hard things and that we need to slow down and make time for them to share them with us if we're in close proximity in relationship to them. And I was thinking as you were talking about that, even the importance of slowing down and listening to ourselves, slowing down and taking the time to acknowledge. Like at the beginning, you said, acknowledge the fear, acknowledge what you're going on. And I think so much and so many of us have just been white knuckling it. Our myological systems were activated. We have so much fear, so much uncertainty. Everything has like looks drastically different than it did. And so can you speak to the importance of the slowing down, the listening to yourself, and what happens if we don't go back and kind of rewrite and make sense of maybe the stories that we were living or the ways that our bodies were activated or even what I would call as unresolved trauma? What is the impact of that? So... I'll speak first to the impact of slowing down and then the impact of what happens if we don't slow down. The importance of slowing down is that we need that moment. One, there's some, I believe that the breath is sacred. There is some value in just taking a breath, acknowledging the moment. It's a lot. It's big. It's valid. Everything that you're feeling is appropriate because then you can more easily get into a place where you can take care of yourself or, you know, people that we care about. And so reminding ourselves, either this is old news or it's not something that's going to overwhelm and consume me, that I don't have to do this by myself, that I have opportunities to update my thinking, that I have opportunities to have a different experience than maybe I've had with this before or the experience that someone shared with me that wasn't really helpful, but I'm going to remind myself that I am different and I may have a different outcome. And we remember we've got access to people. We've got access to tools. We've got access to tomorrow. So we can just focus on today. That's what happens when we slow down. If we do not slow down, then we get dysregulated. We get hypervigilant. Then we want to start medicating. Then we want to start doing things that look like major depressive, you know, that things that look like really serious issues with depression, really serious issues with anxiety, and things that start to create relationship issues. And relationship issues when we're already quarantining together and have limited opportunities to spend time by ourselves, then just our issues start to exacerbate. Our life just becomes more unmanageable. How are you doing now, Dondra? I am doing well, and I appreciate you asking. I try to be really congruent with what I do. So what I did was every single thing that I would recommend for a client to do. I took time for myself. I took time off when I needed time off. I sat in a lot of silence and meditation. I did a lot of journaling, talked to my therapist, spent time with friends, set a lot of boundaries because unfortunately there were a lot of things that I wasn't able to do because when you're trying to have medical care during a pandemic, you don't want to get COVID because that slows down your care. 
COVID would not have been helpful, you know, and I understand it, but, you know, because our healthcare professionals have to be safe. But if you get COVID, then what that means is you don't get your treatment or service at that time. And so there was the extra stipulations, but people were incredibly kind. I did something that I haven't had to do in such volume before, which is let other people be there and do things for me. And instead of saying, no, you don't have to and being all stoic and then wondering, why doesn't anybody care about me? I let them, you know, I just said, thank you. That doesn't come naturally to you, letting people help you? It's not something that I've had to do a whole lot of. I'm usually the one trying to do the help. I'm usually the one coordinating the meals and saying, hey, somebody needs to go get their dog and take them to the vet and make sure they get groomed. And so I just am normally my go to is to be the one doing the helping. But I also have an appreciation for there are times in everybody's life where you need to be the one that's receiving the support and that that's a different kindness. And that's also a pretty sacred experience, too, because there's a lot of intentionality in a busy world where people stop and take time to do something kind for you. So, yeah, I'm doing really well. It's great to hear. Um, One of the things we were talking is I, I, I struggle with letting people help me sometimes. And. I have a friend who, uh, when she got COVID, she like literally sent me a recipe and she was like, will you make me this soup? And it was like such a gift that she could state her needs so specifically around what I could do to be helpful that it really like her doing that taught me so much about how to ask for help and how to let people help me. In the past, I've been like dismissive of it or I'm like, oh, whatever. And it is such a gift to people to tell them exactly what you need from them and how they can move in. It is a way to foster intimacy. It allows them to feel better. (laughs) You know, it just it just is so beneficial. And I thought that is so cool. What are other things that if someone is trying to come along somebody that is sick or struggling What are ways they can be good partners, friends, family members, supporters of people, of someone that's struggling? I think that the most important thing, well, there's two things. I am a pretty private person just because that's just how I am. No no offense to anyone. It's just how I am. Um, But I was intentional about just sharing about being in recovery from breast cancer. We do in my family have a family history of it. I have people around me actually sharing my story has been like an invitation for people to contact me. Like they're finding me. They're like, hey, so understand that you're in recovery. And, you know, there's something that I've said somewhere that they find helpful. And it's an opportunity that I would not have imagined or wanted but is here, can't do anything about it in terms of making it not happen. So I'm choosing to see where the opportunities are, not only for me, but to be able to be there for other people. And so the first thing I would say, Lindsay, is recognizing the sacredness of that person's story. I know I'm saying sacred a lot. I've spent a lot of time meditating. Y'all don't know. So... (laughs) And reflecting and journaling and praying and doing so many things to keep myself where I need to be so that I can be a healthy God, so that I can be a healthy counselor, mom, wife, friend, all of that. But 
And how do you like define sacred? Because I think that is one of those concepts that's kind of like big and mm-hmm. we know it when we feel it. But if you're mm-hmm. spending a lot of time like meditating on that, how would you define that for us? I don't even know if it has a word. So going back to my to my roots and I think about my grandmother in kind of the old church in the country where they didn't have a lot of fancy instruments or anything. And so there was just a lot of acapella and they sing. And then they would get to a part in a song where you just go, "Mm." like it was a sound or a hum. It's kind of that that happens just in my spirit is where I get to a place of stillness, of quietness, of calmness, of confidence where I don't even know that I have a word, but I know when I feel it. And when I feel it, I'm like, this is a sacred space. This is standing in holy ground. This is, we should just have reverence for this moment because something's been created here that's substantial, that's sustainable, that can carry me. So I don't know if the oomph answered your question, Mackenzie. (laughs) It does. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. And so that when someone is sharing with you about something that's personal or painful or private, respecting that, respecting the sanctity of that story and acknowledging how for some people it's just par for the cord, but for other people it took a lot. Um, The second thing that I would say about that, Lindsay, is to attune, listen, get a sense of what they would want. And if you don't know them well enough, then ask questions or ask someone who knows them so that you're giving people what they need. You know, we think about the five love languages and something that happens a lot with couples is the wife will say, man, he keeps giving me gifts, but he will not spend quality time with me. She was like, I am not a gifts person. She's like, it's, it's nice and I don't want to hurt his feelings, but I'm not a gifts person. And so if you're wanting to be helpful, the most helpful thing that you can do is provide things that help, right? And so finding out what what does the person need? Those are the first two things to come to mind. That's really good. And I think we all want to be helpful, but I think about that story like Lindsay shared, it's a lot easier to just say like, I'm thinking of you and keep moving on. Or I'm thinking of you and I don't know how to help you. And so what I hear you saying is getting curious and taking the next step to say what would actually be helpful and giving them the space and permission to say, is this something you want to talk about? Is it something that you're comfortable inviting me into? And being okay if the answer is no and still showing up with something tangible. Those are what I heard. And Lindsay, it made me think when my friend, had, my best friend had a baby, I was like, what have you been craving? And she's like, I have been craving <laughs> Fruity Pebbles, Rice Krispie Treats. And I was like, great. I went out, you know, and so like just knowing exactly what to do was great. I could then show up because she is someone who is always the helper and is always helping other people. So I was like, jumped on the opportunity to be able to help her. So I love that. And thanks for sharing that sacred space with us and and being willing to, to share us a, a little bit about what the last little bit of your journey has been like. And I love hearing about the people that came alongside you and, and helped you because we need more of that. Dondra, one of the things that we sort of ask people a lot in closing is just what is one practice that's helping them kind of right now stay centered and grounded? Do you have a, I know throughout the interview, you've talked about several amazing practices, but is there one that's sort of your daily go-to? I'll give you two. 
So I love to dance. Now, that is not saying that I know how to or that I can choreograph. (laughs) I love to move my body and just have fun. And so dancing is something that I enjoy and also cooking. Do Do you take like a dance class? I want to. When it's safe for me, I'm planning on taking a salsa class, but I'm mostly just going, I'm just going off the cuff, Lindsay, like just going with it. And it makes me happy. It's to me, music is one of the easiest mind and mood altering substances. You know, that that is what works for me. And then just cooking because it's very relaxing for me. It's, you know, something that it does, it fits, checks a lot of the boxes for things that are important to me. And it's just something that makes me happy. So when I can close down for the day, I've seen everybody, then I'm like, let me get in here and create and see what I'm going to have tonight. Do you ever combine the two? We do a lot of kitchen dancing in my house. Like Same. I have a sign that says my, my kitchen's for dancing. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Dondra, we are so uh, grateful for the time that we got to spend with you and Thanks for just showing up and and walking alongside us in this journey. We're so grateful. Thank you for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this and I'm looking forward to getting back up there on campus and seeing you in person. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, Our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.